Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Thursday, January 19th. We are here live. It is a free-for-all, so we'll open up the phones. You can call anytime. We do have a theme today. In fact, I'm excited. We're going to bring back one of my favorite guests to talk about one of my least favorite topics But it's something we've got to talk about, and it's that time of year, so we're going to do it. Joining me today, Travis Adamson, our tax preparer and accountant here at Let's Truck. We're going to answer all of your tax and accounting-related questions today. So uh, we've had Travis on a couple times before. We've talked a lot about tax strategies, about uh, a lot of tax deductions that people might not be taking helping you make sure you pay the least amount of tax possible. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of those topics this morning, but really today is about you and your questions. So line them up, 855-950-3835. Let's get right to it today. Travis, welcome back. Thank you, Kevin. Glad to be here. I, I hate the fact that I have to say it's my least favorite topic, but there's just no way around it. I wish I didn't have to think about this stuff, but we do. That's true. You know, you could make less money and then you wouldn't have to worry about it. That's true. That that uh, never seems to work out, though. That's right. Yeah, there's some really good tax strategies. You could make less money. And one of my favorite tax strategies is dying. A lot of tax benefits associated with death. Yeah, as long as you haven't been overly successful in life. So not not a lot of clients like those options. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. When I first got into this way, way back when and started helping owner-operators with this, I, I would get these calls all the time. I, I I did a lot of stuff like, you know, send me your last three years tax returns. Let me review it. I'll show you what I could have done, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it, it was so common to have somebody say, oh, no, I never pay any tax. I have with the, you know, my tax preparer make sure. And I would look at him and say, look, I, you know, I don't want to burst your bubble, but there's only a couple ways not to pay tax in this country, and I don't like any of them. So something either you're not making any money and what's the point of doing this and being in business and taking all this risk if you're not making any money or you're cheating. Those are the only two ways really not to pay tax, right? That's right. Or you could spend all the money that you make. <laughs> right. Yeah. And constantly reinvest in your business and never take anything home. So Yeah. You know, one of the things I, when I sat down to design my software, our accounting software, Profit Gages, and I used the the rules of, you know, the book, The Seven Habits, begin with the end in mind. And just that process alone made me stop and say, and this seems like a stupid question or so obvious, but it really helped me to stop and say, why do we even do accounting? Like, Like, what's the point of all this? And I had never really stopped to think about that. There's only two reasons. Um, One is taxes. I mean, we have to. The IRS says you have to be able to account for how much money came in and how much went out. And you have to pay tax on what's left. That's a 
pretty important reason. You really can't skip that. But in my mind, that's not the most important reason for doing this. The, the other reason we do accounting is my first reason, and that's just so we know. I don't care about the IRS. I want to know how much money came into my business and how much went out. Uh, and honestly, when it comes to taxes, as crazy as it sounds, I always say I want to be the guy in the room who paid the most tax. Yeah. I, I want to pay the least I can possibly pay. I want to make sure I'm using, you know, the, the tax code to my advantage. So I pay the least amount possible for me. But the more tax I pay, the more successful I was that year. That's right. Yeah, you want to account for everything so you know what's working. Yes. Right? How, yeah. how we can create patterns that will maximize success. Yeah. You know, I, I don't often come up with witty quotes, but uh, I did come up with one that I thought was pretty good, and it, it it's about this topic here. I, you know, one of the things we get in in trucking with owner-operators a lot of times is this total focus on the top line. It's the one number that they know, you know, usually off the top of their head, they don't need to do any accounting to know how much have they grossed. And when they call and they start talking about that, I say, but, well, let's get to the really important number. What was left over? You know, some of the, the years, looking back over 30 some years in business, one of the worst years I had ever had was one of the years I had the highest gross. But my net was just awful that year. I just had a horrible year in business. You know, I, I kind of came up with this quote that your gross revenue is a measure of how well you're serving others. How well are you serving your customers, your clients? That's what brings money in. And if you do that well, you'll, you'll bring in the gross revenue. So gross revenue is a measure of how well you're serving others, but net revenue is a measure of how well you're serving yourself. Right there. And you yeah. have to do that. I mean, or you're not going to be in business long, or, or you're just going to waste a lot of time. And I, being in business is hard. It's risky. I want to be rewarded for that. No doubt. All right. So we, uh, we've covered in our last couple of sessions, we covered a lot of the kind of deductions that we don't see people take advantage of. You know, everybody always wants to know what's, what's the trick what's the secret what's the loophole none of these things are tricks or secrets or loopholes right they're they're all just written into the tax code all we have to do is go read the code right that's right and a lot of it is not even you know written into the code as far as deductions you know the general statute for deduction deductions says that your deduct your business deductions must be ordinary and necessary it's subjective yeah very it depends subjective. on your scenario, on your facts. Yeah. So you, you have to build a case, you know, if you want to deduct something, that it is an ordinary and necessary expense towards your business. Yes. And if you're comfortable doing that, you can take a position that something's deductible. That's how it works. Exactly. So a couple things we you know we we talked about some of those more unusual you know we we it's obvious if we walk into a shop and we buy a part for our truck that's deductible that's 
the people who miss that kind of stuff miss it because they don't have a good accounting system. If you're waiting till the end of the year to right. try to gather all this stuff up, you are going to miss things. It'll happen every time. The deductions we're talking about aren't necessarily quite that obvious. You know, we talked about things like paying your children, which is just an awesome strategy and i'm actually with you and i today we kind of decided on a theme we wanted to talk about like investing and retirement accounts and how those things affect taxes help people with that um so paying children there's another strategy we can tie that into that i absolutely love hopefully i'll remember to come back to that so this is one that's not quite so obvious um I've worked with tons and tons of tax preparers who never think about this, never tell their clients about it. And this isn't some weird loophole. There, there is no second tax code that, you know, only certain people know about. Everything in the tax code is written in there. We can go figure it out. But th these are some where we have to do a little more creative thinking. So they, the IRS put in these different rules about employment when you employ your children, your grandchildren, stepchildren. There's a list of people that qualify for this, but they make it very, very easy for a business owner to hire their own children. And there's some pretty significant tax deductions to doing this. So we covered things like that. And um, just some of, the, some of the things we don't see people um, taking a deduction when, you know, when you own a small business and you go on vacation. Again, the IRS has pretty clear rules about this. We're, we're not making stuff up. The IRS says if you're on vacation and it's mixed business and personal use, they give us all the rules on how to deduct that, right? Correct. Yes. So those are the kind of things we've covered so far. And hopefully everybody was taking notes. If not, you can go back and listen to those shows, make a list, take it to your tax preparer. Although, you know, every time we do a show like this, and I do it so we can help educate people because I, I want people to learn and do better. But I always struggle a little bit with this part of it. Like take this list back to your tax preparer. And then my next thought is, why the hell should we have to educate our tax preparer? Isn't that what we're paying them for? Should be. I agree. Yeah. So it always, you know, I love doing these shows to help people, but it always kind of bothers me that, you know, we're, we're telling them, hey, take this back to your tax preparer when what you should really be thinking is, why didn't my tax preparer bring that to me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So... The other thing I'll tell people is is just because you've had a tax preparer for a long time and your buddies and uh, this is pretty important. You you could either waste a lot of money on on taxes or you could save a bunch if you know what you're doing. So if nothing else, just get a second opinion. You get somebody else to look at it and see. You know, it, it, and here's kind of the story of how I got interested in taxes to begin with. I went through my whole first year, this goes way back, I was 22 years old, bought my first truck, knew, I did understand that I had to pay my own taxes. I, I at least got that part. But in my head, I was looking at tax returns prior to this and thinking, okay, taxes seem to take up somewhere about 10 to 15% of what I gross. 
So I thought if I'm putting aside, you know, 10 to 15%, I should be pretty safe with this. And I didn't do much else throughout that whole first year. And then the year ended and I go to my tax preparer and, and I had saved maybe about $4,000 that year. And I hadn't, I hadn't made a bunch. It was, I was new. It was local. It wasn't a whole year. I'd saved about $4,000. I go to the tax preparer and I've got a $12,000 tax bill. I said, what the hell is this? How, did, how does this make any sense? And that was when I got my first lesson on Social Security and Medicare and all these other things that change when you're in business. And, and I didn't have the money. So now I'm struggling, you know, just starting my first full year in business and I'm struggling to pay the bills anyway. And now I have this, you know, $8,000 tax deficit that I didn't have enough money to cover. And I start making payments to them. Wow. And I'm already thinking about, well, wait a minute, I should be making quarterly estimated payments for the coming year. And I didn't know anything about those. So it was a pretty rough start. Like a year later, I run across somebody who said, oh, no, my tax preparer is really good. You should use him. So I said, hey, could you look over this tax return? And the 12000 became 8000 just like that. And I thought, well. That certainly mm -hmm. helps. And then I found another tax strategy that actually worked way back then. We were taking part of the revenue and actually showing it as rental for the tractor. And we were basing this off of that two-check system where sometimes companies will hire an owner-operator, pay him as an employee, and then rent his truck from him. And we kind of used that model and moved some of the revenue over to the Schedule E as rental income and saved a bunch of self-employment tax. And it, it worked for years till they changed some of the wording on that. But um, I ended up getting that tax bill down to closer to about 6000 And I thought, well, this is just crazy. What if I just would have paid that 12000 and went on and then did it again next year? That's enough to put you out of business sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and every year after that, right? Exactly. You know, I mean, you could just, in, obli in oblivion, just continue on without minimizing the, you know, that bill. That's you start to look at that bill next to some of your other expenses. It, it's one of the larger ones. It is right, and and you know, it's one thing when I when I pull up to the pump and put fuel in my truck. I know it's expensive, but that's what gets my truck down the road. That's how I go make more money. I have to write this big check to the government at the end of the year, and I kind of feel like, well, what what exactly did I get for that? That's right. What I get is frustration at the way they spend it. That's what I get. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was what got me interested in this. And I, I just started doing a lot of reading and, you know, talking and actually went and started breaking open the tax code myself and started looking at a lot of this and thought, you know, this as much as I don't want to deal with all this, I have to. If you're going to be successful in business, you have to understand this and you have to stay on top of it. Now is the time. Um, I know we all hate this. We'd rather just go, you know, do what we do and get back to business. But take your time and get this done once and then set up a pattern from now on. You know, get this done early. Get your numbers in. Get a second opinion. If you haven't done that in a couple of years, get a second opinion on what's going on, get a good accounting system in place, and then take care of this early. You know, just get in and get it over with before 
you know, tax preparers like you are chained to your desk and, you know, working 24 hours a day, which happens during tax season, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's all good advice. I totally agree. All right. So let's uh, it, now if anybody has any questions on those those other deductions we talked about, things like taking a deduction for vacation, paying your children, uh, personal vehicle miles, home office deduction. We talked about some strategies about possibly renting out your home. Uh, we talked about a lot of things that could save you a lot of money. If you have any questions about those pick up the phone and join us. Today really is about you. All right, Travis and I could talk about this stuff all day long, but I think it works a whole lot better when you ask the questions and we talk about your personal situation. So line up the calls, 855-950-3835. So Travis, you and I talked a little bit and decided, let's talk about uh, investing and retirement accounts and things like that, how they affect taxes. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about what we wanted to talk about, and you know, there's a bunch of different tax rates on different types and different characters of income, and they can vary widely. I mean, you hear a lot about the top tax rate, you know, on federal income tax. The top tax rate right now is 37 percent. It's up there. It's been higher in the past. This is actually a comparatively low top tax rate compared to what we've seen before. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people don't understand the lowest tax rate in the code is 0%. <laughs> there is income that you can earn that is taxed at 0%. Wow. I want more of that. Capital gain income, and there's qualified dividend income. And if you're in the first two ordinary brackets, so if you're a married filing joint couple, those first two brackets extend up to about eighty dollars to $85,000 in taxable income. If your income, that's taxable. That's after your standard deduction or your itemized deductions, et cetera. That's after all your you know, business deductions that net your business down. If you're, if you're in that range, then to the extent your income includes those qualified dividends or long-term capital gains, the tax on those is 0%. And so if you sold your business and you took it on a contract and it's all long-term capital gain and, and you only had $100,000 of capital gain in a year and you're married and that's all of your income, well, after your standard deduction, you're going to be at 0% tax on all of your income. Wow. So it's a really powerful thing to be able to take advantage of those lower rates. Now, those rates go up when you exceed those brackets, but they're always more beneficial than the, than the ordinary rates. They cap out about 20%. And so what, while you could be at 37 on your ordinary income, your, you know, your interest or your wages or your rent, if you have qualified dividends or long-term capital gains, you're going to be at 15 or 20 or possibly even zero. And so managing those tax rates can be powerful. And how do you get there? Well, you have to, I mean, they write the tax code to incentivize long-term investment. And so a long-term capital gain means you have to have held it for over one year. Qualified dividends, you have to hold on to the stocks for a time period. Uh, you can't just pick them up just to receive the dividends and then dump them. 
But if you're more patient and you're willing to do that, you can cut the tax on your gains in half or maybe even better. That's big. That's big. And, you know, I, I, a couple things came to mind while you were talking about this. Um, one, what you you um, said just now, patient, long-term, really that applies to everything about money. That's really one of the lessons people would really need to learn about money is don't be in a hurry for anything. Don't be in a hurry to get a new car and you're willing to finance it for eight years to do it. You know, don't, virtually everything, the power of investing, since one of the things we're going to talk about is investing here, the power of investing really is time. The, the, everybody wants to know, what's the, what, what's the best investment to put my money into? Well, there isn't one, and every investment we make is speculative. We, we, there's, if you can guarantee what the outcome is going to be of your investment, I can promise you it won't be very good. Things that guarantee an outcome don't guarantee much of an outcome. Anything that, that we would use, and the reason we invest money is so that it grows on its own, and anything we invest in has risk. We, we don't necessarily know what the outcome's going to be, but the, the goal here is to grow that money, and it really does require patience. So when people run into your office at the last second and say, I, I got to get my tax return done. I don't want to pay any more than I have to. Well, you know in the back of your mind, you are going to pay more than you have to. I, and there's nothing I can do about it at this point. You can't run in here and I can't wave a magic wand. But if you'll work with your tax preparer and plan for things and take that long-term, patient, strategic approach, you really can lower your tax with a lot of these things. I had someone come in just this week and say, oh, I had all these investment gains. What can we do in 20, for 2022 taxes? I said, it's 2023. <laughs> right. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing left that we can do as far as harvesting losses or anything like that. It's over. Right. Now all we can do is report what happened. Yes, we have to get more proactive but, yeah, and plan more. Yeah. Definitely. I wanted to, to mention those rates because they're often a surprise when I mention it to clients that, hey, we can take it, possibly take advantage of some of these lower rates. And those lower rates can get really low if you know what you're doing. So I often will tell people, you know, I, I see this a lot with someone who might retire in their 60s, but they don't have to take anything yet from their required minimum distributions from IRAs. They are probably putting off Social Security, and so they have some years with some lower income, and they're no longer working. They might be receiving some kind of a pension or something, but they have some lower income years, and they have a lot of uh, – if they've invested well, they have some long-term capital gains that are just sitting there. And I tell them, we should recognize some of those in these years because you've got some room where they could be taxed at 0%. And you could step up your basis in these stocks where if you had to cash them out later, you can, you can reduce the gain that, that might be required at a, certain, at a later point. So if you have some, some room in your tax brackets and you have some gains that are, unre that are unrealized, you might want to realize those gains 
at a zero percent tax and then not have to pay that tax later if you were to liquidate those positions. Yes. Again, one of the things that came into my mind as you were talking about this, uh, most of the time, I think, and we did it, we did our first two segments on, you know, deductions, and we we tend to focus a lot. Questions always seem to be about deductions. But I was just thinking as you were talking about this, how complicated the income side of all this is. And, And I hadn't even thought about it the way you just laid it out with all these different rates that have nothing to do really with deductions. This is talking about how we're going to tax different forms of income. And it is all over the board. I I think most people don't grasp this concept at all. So I think the way you just laid that out um, really makes a lot of sense and gets you thinking another strategy. We know one strategy is take deductions, take credits to, you know, try to get rid of everything you can. Uh, but this strategy is a little different. This is saying we're, we're, we're going to focus on how each form of revenue is taxed and can we move some things around and create some advantages. And, and this isn't a quick fix. This isn't something you can run in at the end of the year and say, oh, let's do this. This, is, this requires more planning and, and really working with your tax preparer, right? That's right. Yeah. You have to really be a, you know, know what your income is for the year, know what your potential sources of income are. And, you know, let's, let's take advantage of some of these lower tax rates. Yes. I love that. Now let's jump into, you know, kind of investing and, and, you know, let's talk about some um, retirement accounts. It, isn't it crazy how, you know, I, I think back to when I first started doing this and how we were dealing with retirement accounts then. And I look now, you know, 20 some years later, could they have complicated this anymore? I mean, I, I try to go through the list in my head of all the different retirement accounts, you know, 401ks, simple SEPs, Kehoe's, 403Ps. I mean, we could just go on and on and on with all this goofy alphabet soup and numbers and codes. And I, just so that we can put aside some money for our retirement without it being taxed so heavy. How did we make such a mess of this? I think it's a product of just the political system, right? I mean, you, it's always there's always some, some Congress person who's trying to reinvent the wheel and get something named after themselves or <laughs> it's not enough to just, to, to just streamline a basic system. We've got to, I guess there are different types, you know, for different situations as well. Uh, but yeah, like you say, it is incredibly complicated. The, uh, the world of, retirement planning, especially when you own a business, it adds a whole new wrinkle, but it does give you opportunities to, you know, you, it, I mean, you have a lot of available products. Yes. Yeah. Here, here's the, I, I think the, the big picture people need to know about this. And this is kind of what I saw. And this is, by the way, one of the things that you do have some opportunities after the year is over that you can still have an impact on how much tax you pay. But I want to tell people, don't get too excited about this. You're going to be disappointed. And usually the people who need this deduction 
can't take advantage of it. And I'll explain why. You know, people run in at the last minute, you do their tax return, you tell them how much tax they owe and they go pale and, um, you know, they start stuttering and, well, I don't have that much money. What can I do? Well, at that point, the only thing left, really, there may be some weird stuff out there, but for the most part, if the year's over, we can still do some retirement contributions and lower tax. The problem is it doesn't lower it nearly as much as you would hope, especially if you're a business owner. You're kind of used to looking at business deductions and roughly you get to about 30% is what a true business deduction is going to save you roughly. The problem with retirement deductions sometimes doesn't even save you half of that. And people are always shocked. What do you mean? I have to put $10,000 into this account so I can lower my tax bill by 1500 And the problem is at that point, they're trying to get their tax lower because they can't afford to pay their tax bill. Well, I'll tell you, at that point, the last thing you should be doing, if you can't afford to pay your tax bill, you really shouldn't be investing as much as I hate to say it. Yeah, you totally nailed it. Number one, you know, a business deduction is worth more than a retirement contribution from a tax standpoint if you're subject to that self-employment tax, because that reduces both. A business deduction reduces both taxes. A retirement contribution only reduces the income tax. It's not a deduction for purposes of a self-employment tax. So you're only getting a little bit of help. And then, like you say, if you're desperate for help, you're desperate for cash. <laughs> right. And this is a this is a long-term patient approach. It's not the approach where I need to preserve cash to pay my taxes. That's 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 not what this is best at. I will say this: there's one other account, Kevin, other than retirement planning that you can do after the fact, and that's a health savings account. Oh, great point! And that is, in, in a lot of ways, better than a retirement account. Okay. It's almost like you get the best of the Roth and the traditional. So let let's talk about this a little bit because I think I'm probably this is one of those areas where when um, HSAs originally came out as MSAs, medical savings accounts, I was on like the cutting edge of that whole topic when they first came out. It was when I was really doing a lot of tax work. I got really interested in it, um, really did all the work on it, worked with a couple insurance companies and came up with plans for drivers. And I was so excited about the MSAs. And it seems like from the day they came out, every change after that has made them worse. I I haven't seen much improvement in this. In fact, I, I look back at the original MSAs and I think they were better. Um, they've changed a couple things, but they, you know, they complicated them. They made them a little more restrictive. Um, I, I thought this was one of the best tax codes I had seen. I'm not a big fan of the government using tax codes to change our behavior. They do it all the time. I, I hate that whole concept. But if they're going to do it, at least this one, I, I thought was a, a, a step in the right direction. And it seems to have very little impact. So few people have these. But I, I loved everything about them. It, it put more responsibility for healthcare back on the individual, gave us some in- incentives to, you know, take on bigger deductibles and pay more things out of our own pocket, which I think is would have been good for our system. I, 
I liked everything about them, except it seems like they've screwed them up and they're just not used all that often. You have to have an eligible insurance plan to begin with. And so that's the biggest roadblock. Not all insurance plans allow you to even open one up. But I tell all my clients, if if you have an insurance plan that does allow you to have a health savings account, run out today and open one up. I agree. You can't afford not to have one if you're eligible. I agree. Because as soon as you open that plan, then you can start counting your out-of-pocket medical expenses, and those become eligible for reimbursement from the plan. And what does that do? It essentially allows you to deduct all of your doctor bills and prescriptions and all those medical costs. Whereas everyone else who doesn't have one is stuck trying to include them as an itemized deduction, but they have to ex- to exceed, you know, seven and a half percent of your income first. And it's just, it's just almost impossible to get much benefit from your medical expenses. Right. Unless you have one of these and you don't even have to put money in it to be eligible. You just have to have one open. It, great point. I'm really glad you brought this topic up. Um, like I said, it, I go way, way back on this and I've always been excited about it. And the last couple of years, um, Really, after Obamacare kind of changed everything around health insurance, uh, and I went out and I had had an H, I had had an MSA way back at the beginning. I had the HSAs after they came out, uh, and then because of the changes with Obamacare, I ended up with insurance that doesn't qualify anymore. I use the, you know, that the the MediShare type accounts. Uh, which isn't technically insurance. You can't even use the insurance word. Um, I've had mine since Obamacare came out. I absolutely love it. It's my favorite health insurance I've ever had. My whole I, I've been self-employed my whole life, so I've always had to go get my own health insurance. I've hated it, been frustrated with it. This plan that I have now is my favorite of all time, except for the fact that I no longer qualify for a, an HSA. That's right. Yeah, that's one weakness of the legislation is that it does not include those uh, sharing ministry type plans uh, as an eligible plan. And honestly, if they would, I would say if if I could, like I said, I'd love my health sharing plan right now. And if I could combine that with the HSA, that would be like a, about the best situation in all the time I've had to, you know, buy my own health insurance, except because this is the way they write the rules. I can't do that. Makes me a little crazy. Right. And I guess I should clarify for all your listeners, you're allowed to still have an HSA. You're just not allowed to put money into it. Yeah. Good point. Good you're point. allowed to still, you know, maintain your balance and, you know, keep those funds, but, and take out of it and get reimbursed. You're just not allowed to contribute any longer, which is the big benefit. So, absolutely. Um, so, let's continue to talk about the HSA a little bit. Now, I'm not as up on the rules as I used to be, but the way I remember it, they were pretty um, liberal and lax on what type of medical expenses could be paid for through your HSA. And, and, you explained it. When we move the money through the HSA, there are big tax savings here. That's the whole point of doing this. Um, so when we, we have... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
I was just going to say, I can give you just real quick and your listeners the basics of how these work. So it's a, it's a savings account that you're allowed to put either your, your wages, you can divert your wages into this account, or you can just write a check into that account and fund it every year. And there's a limit on how much you can put in there. Right now, it's about $7,300. They nice. step it up every year with inflation. Yeah. That's for family coverage. It's about half that for just an individual. Okay. Once you put the money in, you get a deduction, whether that reduces your W-2 or a deduction that you take on your tax return. So now you've got money in an account and you have a deduction, similar to an IRA, where you put money in and you get to, re- and the amount is pretty similar too. Right. The difference is, you're allowed to take that money out to the extent you've used it for qualified medical expenses. Qualified medical is the same, same definition that they use for a deduction on your tax return for medical expenses. It's essentially anything that the doctor orders, prescription or doctor bills or uh, whatever might come up medically. You cannot use these funds for medical insurance premiums until you're 65. And then you can use, you know, what you have in there for like a Medicare supplemental plan or something. So one of the things that can get confusing about this, and I think hopefully we can clarify it here. You know, we we have insurance rules about what types of things your insurance will pay for or reimburse you for. It's easy to start getting those confused with what the IRS allows you to deduct And, and the there's probably a lot of crossover, but those two lists aren't the same, right? I wouldn't think so, no. And if if you have an out-of-pocket uh, liability, your insurance is not going to cover something, all of a sudden that is something that is eligible for the HSA to reimburse you for. I, I use the term reimburse. Uh, and it's not necessarily always a reimbursement because like we talked about earlier, you can work backwards with the HSA. You can open up the account. And once you open your account, start counting receipts and keeping medical receipts. And then as long as you have those receipts, you can reimburse yourself at some point in the future. Good point. Like we talked about, you can only put $7,000 in there in a year. Right. Right. If you have a surgery that costs 50,000 bucks out of your pocket, well, for the next seven or eight years, you could just fund the HSA, get your deduction, and then the same day that you fund it, reimburse yourself for that expense that you'd already incurred until you're fully reimbursed. Excellent. And you're getting a free deduction every year just for taking money, putting it into account, and taking it right out. I love that. Let's talk about this. So, you know, we do a lot of health stuff. It's also a big part of what we do. And in kind of what we call the, you know, functional, holistic, natural health world, insurance doesn't pay for much of anything, even if it's a doctor. Uh, We work with several doctors. We have a couple of cardiologists we work with. And, you know, when these guys were traditional cardiologists, if they wrote it down, insurance probably reimbursed for it. I mean, it, it. now they become natural and they're actually helping people live better and get healthier. They're not just prescribing drugs to them. And now insurance won't pay for anything. It's just insane. But that doesn't necessarily affect the taxes. So 
the the types of things you know a lot of our listeners are spending money on health wise supplements um you know infrared saunas it, can we make those kind of things deductible through an hsa there there is a lot of flexibility when it comes to the medical you know, the IRS does not want to get into a argument with doctors. And so they've kind of said, if it's doctor required, we'll go along with it. For example, there's kind of a well-known uh, exception for medical expenses. You could put a pool in if it's doctor ordered. You have to reduce your deduction by the increase in value to your home. But the installation of a, of a swimming pool can be a partial medical expense. And so it, it can get pretty creative, but you are, it is going to require, uh, you know, the, the doctor's orders. Got it. And actually, now that we have, you know, more practitioners in the natural world, I, I think there is a real opportunity. I, I'm kind of with you. The IRS does not want to get into medical arguments about what was necessary. And so for the most part, I, I think if you document this, if you've got an HSA, you work with a practitioner, you're buying supplements, you're buying these health-related things, um, it, it, these are deductions. I mean, we, we might get a little aggressive on some of them, but I would. Here's another approach to this. And it, what do you think about this? Is there any strategy in, in this idea that maybe we could make a deduction even better? Um, truck drivers actually have medical requirements to be able to drive. Yeah, I, I have people come to me all the time because we deal with health. They have lost their ability to drive. They've let their health deteriorate to the point where they can't get their medical card anymore. The physician will look at them and say, no, I, I don't feel safe signing off and letting you drive a commercial vehicle. And it's the physician's discretion. There's a lot of leeway in the rules on this. But there are times where drivers lose the ability um, to go earn a living or, or to continue their business if, if they're an owner-operator. The, the way the system works is typically you have to get a, a physical and you have to get recertified medically every two years. But if you show up and your A1C is high and your blood pressure is high, the doctor has the discretion to say, I'm only going to give you a certification for one year. I, and here's what I want you to work on. And then we'll look at it again in one year. They can give them a six-month card or they can give them a three-month card or they can just fail to qualify them, period. Does that create any kind of business tax deductions around health? Uh, you know, it, it's starting to go down that road, ordinary and necessary. I mean, the IRS likes to think about health as being personal. And so, you know, you might you might run into some issues deducting health related things on the business. Um, but you know, the HSA I think is an easier standard to meet. It is. Because I they're, agree. they're used to letting you deduct, you know, personal health, uh, type deductions there. Another strategy, Kevin, that we often see with kind of some savvy investing type clients is they'll use an HSA like a retirement account. Yes. They will max out their contributions. They will hang on to receipts and they'll hang on to receipts for 20 years. Right. Because you can invest 
the balance in your HSA tax-free. And so they'll use that like another retirement account. And But it's it's almost the best because when you put in, you get a deduction like the traditional. But as long as you hang on to your receipts, you can take it out in 25 years like a Roth. Absolutely. Yeah. It's tax-free on the, back, on the back end. Yeah. Really is one of the more powerful tax strategies and yet not used all that often. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I highly recommend. I tell all my clients, if you qualify for one, you have to just go open one. You have to. You yes. can't afford not to. Yeah. Great, great point. All right. So we've got, uh, we've got some calls coming in. What do you say we take them? Let's roll some calls. All right. Let's go to Utah to get started today. Brian, welcome to the program. Brian? Hey, can you hear oh, me? There you are. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. Yeah, my headset is uh, messing with me. So uh, anyway, I'll try to be quick here. Good morning, fellas. Um, I've reached out. I did the tax thing on Let's Truck, and I've, I've spoke with Blake, and I'm going to be working with y'all. y'all Excellent. Um, just waiting to get my 1099 and my W-2 for my employer to start uploading all that stuff, Travis. But I have a couple questions. Um my carrier just partnered with uh, UTBA. You know, y'all know who that is, but, the Universal Trucking Benefits. No, nah, I'm not familiar with that. I'll uh, I'll take a look at it here real quick no, while we're yeah, talking. Okay. Well, anyway, they partnered with them to to offer some, uh, um, and you know, uh, owner operator some benefits. And you know, I worked. I called in and and set up some stuff. Uh, you know, basically uh, dental and and met and. Uh, vision and some disability and, and, uh, some, just some basic, uh, um, uh, life insurance, you know, they had an indemnity plan and they also had a critical illness plan, but you had to me- have major medical. Um, but that guy was telling me, Hey, I'd like to see you just get, you know, a major medical, but you know, all of the other stuff can be done through a, a settlement deduction, but the major medical, you have to go to healthcare.gov, right? So I went there, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, the guy was telling me, hey, you, you, you know, you're, you're sole proprietor. You need to set up LLC. You need to do S-Corp. You need to pay, make yourself a W-2 employee, pay yourself less than 65000 a year, and then you can take advantage of all the government subsidies on healthcare.gov, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, you know, it's like 800 bucks a month for like a 6000 um, you know, and it's an HMO, which they suck. Um, but anyway, it's like 800 something dollars a month for a $6,000 deductible and 9,000 out of pocket maximum. I mean, it's just a basic plan. And so you almost answered my question while I go about MediShare. Um, yeah, I'm wanting to know, like as a first year owner operator, what's going to make more sense? Is it going to be to go through healthcare.gov and, and, and after I, after I get all that set up and then that's all tax deductible, but the MediShare plan's not. Right. Yeah. Brian, let me, uh, first caution you, you know, he says, Hey, if you S corp and you pay yourself a wage of less than 65,000, then you're qualified for subsidies on a, uh, on a state exchange plan which you might get up front, but I would also caution you 
on your tax return, you have to reconcile your subsidy received with your actual gross income and not just your wages, your business income and your wages. So your gross in, you know, your, your actual adjusted gross income from your tax return gets compared to the income used to determine your subsidy. Uh, and if your subsidy is too high, then you have to repay that on your tax return. And so we see that sometimes where people will get a little bit aggressive when they apply for health insurance through a state exchange. And then we have to reconcile their subsidy on their tax return. And they owe a, a bunch, they, they owe essentially an entire year's health insurance premium with their taxes. They could owe 10,000 uh, bucks. So it's not just based. It's not just based on wages. Okay. Well, that makes it pretty sometimes, for me. Sometimes the state Medicaid plans, they do just based on wages and don't make you reconcile. But any state exchange plan through a, through a private insurer that goes through the state exchange, you're going to have to reconcile that, and it's going to be based off your entire income. So you got to be really careful. Uh, you, you could really get hit on the tax on the tax return because of that and pay all those premiums on the back end. And, that, and that's even if you pay the, the premiums out of your LLC. That's right. I mean, you can still deduct them. You can still deduct them, but you're going to end up paying them. Uh, if your income doesn't, doesn't warrant a true subsidy based okay. off the poverty line. And then the other thing with, with the health sharing ministries, they're almost always a better deal because they can, they can uh, discriminate uh, on who they allow in. And so these Obamacare plans, they don't allow for discrimination. They don't, uh, they don't discriminate based off of pre-existing conditions. Uh, whereas the health sharing ministries are allowed to do that. They're allowed to discriminate who can even be a part of their collective based off lifestyle and you know, different things. And so they're going to have a more stratified sample and the premium is going to be cheaper. So if you qualify and yeah, I'd say most people do, but uh, not everyone, if you do qualify, it's usually going to save you money to go that route. Yeah, I would qualify. I mean, I looked at their uh, qualifications and it's considerable. I mean, if you, even if you go with their best thing, it's like, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month. I mean, it's... You, you know, here's the other thing I really love about them. Like I said, I, I, I've had one for a very long time. I love the fact that I don't have to think about networks and HMOs and approvals ahead of time. And I, I, I just go, you know, get done what I need to get done and I send them the bill and they pay it. Absolutely. That's what I want too, because those HMOs I look for, you know, you got to have, you got to have a primary care physician and then none of the, my doctors that I've ever seen in the Dallas area even will touch an HMO. It, it, yeah. And then know? you got to get referrals constantly. It's just a total hassle. It's so I, I, 
there's a little more risk possibly in these plans because they're not insurance and technically they don't have to pay your bills. But you look at the history of these things, they're very well run. Uh, The company that I use puts out every month, they put out how much money they took in, how many claims they paid out. They're very transparent about it all. And I I have to say, 30 some years of paying my own health insurance, this is the happiest I've ever been. And that is the MediShare, Christian medical sharing plan you're talking about, correct? Well, MediShare, I think, is a is a brand name. I think that's one specific group. So I'm, right now, I'm just talking generically about medical okay. sharing programs. They're always, I think, they're always run through um, religious organizations, churches of some kind. Um, but th- there are multiple companies out there that do this. So we're, we're just talking in general about how they work. Well, I was Brian, I would also, I would also add, you want to, you want to do your research on those because some of them will have a cap on coverage and the cap might be $125,000, which sounds like a lot, but it doesn't always, I mean, you're the reason you want insurance is for like to say major medical. And so you want to have something that's going to cover you in the case of an auto accident, cancer, something that could cost a lot more. And so you want to look at those caps and make sure that you're managing your risk with the product that you end up getting. Okay. I understand. Um, could I ask you one more thing real quick? Uh, I forgot to ask Blake about this whenever I talked with him, but if I'm domiciled in Amarillo, Texas, and I'm living in an RV and working out of the Dallas terminal, is any of that, You know, uh, is any of that tax deductible? Say that again. If you're, are any of your living expenses tax deductible? Right. Like, you know, I live in an RV park. Uh, I'm living out of a fifth wheel. It's not my, it's not where I'm domiciled. My, everything, uh, my driver's license, passport, all, everything is, is in Amarillo, Texas, but I'm living and working out of Dallas terminal currently and it is like a it's both temporary and has turned out to kind of be a permanent uh, thing at at the same time so you're asking a quick question that has a entails a very long answer okay okay no no worries i'll i'll talk to i'll talk about the concept the tax concept is called being away from home and the tax code essentially says you have one tax home, and it's not necessarily the, 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 the address on your driver's license or on your passport. Your tax home is a concept of where, do you, where, where are you economically the most tied to. And if you're away from that for a temporary time and you can deduct for business your expenses of being away from home, but... Sometimes your tax home may change without you really knowing it. And so the idea behind it is a little bit complicated, not as easy to understand as you might think, but uh, there, are, there are some benefits when you're away from home. The question is, is, what is your tax home? And it's a tougher question than you might originally just be Okay. <laughs> I understand. No worries. 
Um, so I'll, I'm going to be working with y'all this year. So, you know, that's something that I can work with Blake on. So I'll, I'll get off here great. and let y'all get to, yep. Thank you very much for, for the info and, and, uh, yep. Y'all have a blessed day and, and I'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Let's go to South Carolina. Terrence, welcome to the program. How's it going, Kevin? How's it going? Uh, I got a question. So I, the company I used to work for, I had an HSA, and I was in Wisconsin. I moved to, to South Carolina, and I still had some money in there, but then I closed the account. What, does it, my question would be, was the, the health savings account, does it have to be in the state where you live? Well, can once you have a one open, can you keep just contributing to that account? It does not have to be in the state where you live, uh, and you can keep contributing so long as you qualify to contribute. Meaning, you have a health insurance plan that is compatible with an HSA. Okay. All right. So I got to find out if my 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 plan I got down here is allows me to have a health savings account. Travis, it's, that's right, and that that only counts for contributions. Okay. So you can still maintain the account and still reimburse yourself for your medical expenses from past contributions, even if you don't have a yeah. plan that's currently compatible. Well, you know what I did, though? I was ignorant. I shouldn't say stupid, but I didn't know about it. I just knew it was a good thing because I would put like $25 in it or whatever every week. And then like if I went to the dentist, anything that I was over, you know what I mean? I used it for stuff like that. It worked out great, but I wasn't, I, I really did not, I, like I said, I was ignorant. I did not understand how it worked. Now listening to you guys, I'm like, well, damn, if I would have kept that open, like you're saying, if, as long as I still, once I had that account, even if I changed like employees, that money, even though my present state insurance wouldn't allow me to have it, I could use that, like you said, down the road for future stuff is for my uh, medical expenses, correct? Correct. Okay. Well I, well, I closed it, so all right. I just wanted to lighten myself on that one. So if I can get one, if that's the best thing to do, just do like you said, you know, put money into it, and it, the money's always going to be there. I can use it for the 20 years from now. Definitely. Okay. All right. That's a big help. I appreciate it, guys. I'll let someone else get in there. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Uh, we've got phone lines open. It's all about taxes today. We'll stay here as long as we've got questions. So line them up, 855-950-3835. Um, Travis, from what I remember, and again, I, I haven't stayed up on the HSA requirements the last couple of years. From what I remember, there were two basic kind of tests you had to meet. One was a high deductible and the other one had to do with like maximum out of pocket. Are those still kind of the, the guidelines? Yes. And I think it just has to do with the high deductible. Okay. As far as I know. And, but even those rules, everything's a high deductible now, but not everything qualifies. So it doesn't always have to do with the deductible. There's some requirement with the workings of the plan that I'm not totally familiar with that will give the gold star to some plans and some plans will not meet uh, the requirement. A typical government, like I said in the beginning, how they've, 
complicated <laughs> all of the different retirement accounts and different rules. And, and it seems to me like, you know, I go back to that first year they brought out the MSA and, and since that time they've done nothing but make them more complicated. Right, right. It's, I mean, HSAs are a good thing in that they put people more in charge and more thinking about their own health care. Because now they're thinking, well, this actually costs me my money as opposed to, well, whatever, bill insurance, I don't care. Right? That was what I liked about them best. That When the MSA came out, certainly I was interested in the tax benefits, but really I was promoting them more for what you just talked about. That, it, in my opinion, it is the way we should be handling healthcare, and the fact that we don't do it this way is one of the reasons our healthcare is so screwed up. It's one of the few systems in the country where the people who are receiving the services don't pay for those services directly and have no concern about how much those services are costing because the money's not coming out of their pocket, and it makes a mess of the whole system. Right. Uh, it's kind of like if you were to every time you went to get fuel or repairs on a vehicle, you ran it through your auto insurance. It, right. Right. <laughs> an, inefficient, an inefficient way to make it happen. That, that is so, the analogy I used to use. You know, we have auto insurance. We never expect our auto insurance to replace the brakes on our car. We have homeowner's insurance, but we don't expect the homeowner's policy to replace our hot water heater when it goes out. And they don't, because that doesn't make sense. Insurance can't work that way. But in health insurance, for some reason, we've taken a totally different approach and look at what a mess it's made. And if the doctor had to look at you in the eye like a... Uh, like a mechanic does when you say, how much is this going to cost me? Right. And, and he says, that procedure is going to cost you $31,000. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be tougher for him to, to tell you that if yeah. you have to write a check as opposed to he just sends it to the insurance. Yeah. So the efficiency would be there. And it is one of the good things about the sharing ministries is that the closer you get to being a cash payer, the closer we get to that more efficient system that we're talking about. So those have been a good thing as far as putting people more in charge and more involved in their healthcare in general. You know, and here's, here's one of the other things. And I, I kind of knew that this went on somewhat before I had an HSA or the, the medical sharing really. Uh, but now I see, I, I'm kind of blown away by how much this goes on and how willing healthcare providers, doctors, all of them, how willing they are to negotiate when you're paying cash. Yeah. I it, I mean, it, it's crazy. Lisa's, I mean, Lisa's just like the master negotiator. She deals with all of our vendors, all of our contracts. She negotiates everything for us. And it is hilarious to watch her with, with this medical sharing. She will, every provider, she negotiates with every single provider and she negotiates hard and they accept it all the time. Wow. Yeah, another advantage. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, I don't care about that. My insurance pays for it. Except that's a horrible system. That's what got us to $80 aspirin in the hospital. Exactly. And, I mean, like you say, 
doctors they don't they don't enjoy it either. No, billing Medicare, uh, billing Medicaid, dealing with even the I mean it's an issue with doctors just to be approved to bill certain insurances, and so it it, it complicates the system on both sides. Yeah. It really does. So that that was kind of a, a you know, a, a unexpected advantage to this is, you know, now that technically we pay for everything out of our pocket and then we submit it for reimbursement, that gives you the opportunity to, to negotiate those rates. And like mm-hmm. I said, I, I'm just blown yeah. away by how much they're willing to negotiate. It, it tells you that they hate this system, too. They, they don't like this. I don't blame the doctors for this. This is the insurance company and the government that's made a mess of this. Correct. All right. Well, um, Travis, I think most people are sleeping. I don't, I don't know what happened today because usually when we get on and talk about taxes, our phone lines just light up and we've, we run out of time. And uh, today, I, um, one of two things happening. They're, they're either sleeping or you and I did such a great job explaining all this stuff the last couple of shows. They just don't have any questions anymore. I'm going to go with the latter. Yeah. Wow. I know. So we we'll, answered all the questions. I, you know, it's kind of like getting to the end of the internet, isn't it? <laughs> Let me ask you, Kevin, what do you think about real estate as a tax uh, efficient way to invest? Oh, oh, great, great topic. In fact, I, I need to talk more with you about this, not now in the off season, because really, Um, And and I've talked about this on the air. I I was, you know, for years I invested into the stock market through retirement accounts and and things like that. And a couple of years ago, we really kind of liquidated a lot of stuff, Um, moved a lot of stuff out of retirement accounts, still have a couple left, not a, a whole lot of money in the market at all, and really started to invest in real estate. Um, And it wasn't necessarily because I thought it was a better investment, although the more the more I get involved in it, the more I do feel it is better. My real reason for doing this, for making the big change, honestly, I was just really bored with the stock market. I, I you know, I kept looking at this money in there and I'm like, I, I love the fact that, you know, I, I've been able to accumulate this and it's doing well and my returns have been good. You know, the last decade's been good in the market. Um, but I thought, all that money's sitting there. I get like zero enjoyment from it. You know, it's just there. It's just numbers on a piece of paper. It doesn't even really feel like I have that money. And I just wanted to be more active, but I didn't want to do things like day trading. And so, you know, I wasn't interested in that. And then I started thinking, you know, well, let's play around with real estate, mostly because of where I live. Um, I, I do not want some of the models like house flipping, not interested in that at all. Um, not interested in long-term rentals where I'm dealing with tenants all the time. That just doesn't interest me at all. Um, so I'm looking at a couple different ways of investing. Some just realizing that where I am, real estate is very limited. And, and at some point it, in the town I'm in, it could disappear completely. Because we're in a, a national scenic area, the town is not allowed to grow. 
The borders are set. They'll never change. Once the real estate is kind of taken up within the little town and it's small, there won't be any more. So when you understand supply and demand, there's an opportunity there. So some of the stuff we're buying, we're just, you know, picking up great deals on property right here in town and just holding it Um, or using it for a garden. I bought a buildable lot next to me and turned the whole thing into a garden. Um, But then we're also looking at properties around other parts of the gorge. We bought some property over in Washington that will probably turn into vacation rentals. Not long-term, but vacation rentals. So um, I need to sit down with you and talk about going forward, we're going to be doing more of this. How do we maximize all of this for taxes? And honestly, this is one of the areas where I don't have a lot of knowledge on tax and real estate because it wasn't anything I ever focused on. Yeah, and it's one of my favorites uh, because conceptually, number one, like you say, when, when you have something that's limited – it's going to go up in value. And so you've got an appreciating asset and when it appreciates real estate, as long as you hang on to it for that over one year is going to qualify you for those preferential tax rates down the road. And so real estate's a great move because the, the appreciation can qualify for capital gains, but here's what makes it unique. If you buy a building that you rent out or use for business in some way that's appreciating, even though it's going up in value, the IRS allows you to depreciate it, treat it as if it's going down in value and deduct it. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're getting appreciation while you're treating it for tax purposes as if it's going down in value and you're allowed, you're allowed to write it off. So it's a good, it's very taxpayer friendly in that regard. Yeah. Almost, almost the best that we have as far as, I mean, what other things can go up in value and the IRS says, go ahead and write it off at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. That almost never happens. That, that almost never happens. Um, Go ahead. Oh yeah. Cash flow wise. I mean, you could be showing a healthy cash flow, but for tax purposes, it could be showing a break even after that depreciation deduction and not even not to mention what you're looking at from an appreciation standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ton, there's a ton of reasons that I like real estate from a tax perspective. I, I, like I say, I I had never really thought about it till about five or six years ago when we, you know, started looking at property out here and seeing some opportunities. So, you know, now I'm a lot more interested. And like I said, I want to sit down with you after, tax season and kind of, you know, look at what we're doing and what we might want to do in the future. Here's another advantage to the model we're going to use vacation rentals, or, you know, if you wanted to use long-term rentals, I just don't want to deal with all the hassles of that. But a lot of people may not understand earlier in the program, we talked about revenue, the revenue on, on real estate is different, right? It is now vacation rentals, if you're averaging under uh, under seven days average, is going to be treated like a business, not like a not like a rental business. And so you are looking at self-employment tax when you have you know essentially Airbnb type properties where you're providing services. Okay. And you're, you know you're providing maid service, and and so it's a pretty complicated side of things as to how does this real estate activity get classified for tax. There's there's a few things that have to go into looking at that. 
And there's, a, there's, you know, half a dozen ways that your activity could get treated based off of the average rental rate, the degree of services you're providing. Got it. And so once we kind of get into that, we can see, but that could be a good thing because it can get you out of the passive loss rules. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Typically you show a, a loss for, to show a loss for real estate, you just bank that and you're only allowed to offset passive income with your passive loss. But if you're now running an active business with these, uh, with these vacation rentals, then it could, you know, it could get kicked out of the passive loss rules potentially. Yeah. There's, There's a bunch of ways that could go this way and that way, but it's usually, usually there's a lot of opportunity. Maybe we can get more into that. I don't know. Yeah. Next, next show or something. But. Yeah. Yeah. It, you're right. That what you just said, you know, applies in a lot of ways that um, the more we hate that they overcomplicate a lot of these things, but sometimes that is what creates the opportunity. The more complicated they make it, sometimes the more opportunities there are to exploit that. Yeah. You just got to meet the rules. If there's a lot of rules, then. Got to dive into them and see which ones apply, and which way you want to go, and then you can do your best to meet those. Uh, yeah, let's. Uh, I just look back at the phone lines, and uh, everybody heard me because the phone lines just exploded. How are you on time today? Forgot to ask. I have a nine. I have a nine thirty, so I got about got fifteen it. more minutes. Got it. Let's focus on the calls then. Danny in Pennsylvania, go ahead. Hey, Kevin. Um, I heard you talking about the other day, you're talking about profit gauges and what to put in under different categories. Um, would truck payment and trailer payments go under there? Do you look at that when you look at your net as, as far as deductions? Yeah. So that go, you just kind of leave that. So are you talking about for tax purposes or for running the business purposes? Looking at your P&L. Well, no, I, it, I'm not really talking so like about which. Got, so we actually set up the reports in profit gauges differently, and we set up the reports to reflect how they would affect taxes. What I mean by that is in our business report, we show equipment payments as an expense. So we're showing the monthly payment as an expense because it is, it's an operating expense. You had to take money out of your profit every month and pay that. So on a business report, we show that on a tax report. We don't because that, that payment is not tax deductible. It's an operating expense, but it's not tax deductible depreciation is how you get your deduction for the equipment, but a depreciation has nothing to do with real life cash flow. So that's why we treat them differently. Each right. report is set up so that it gives you the, the right information. A business report, I am concerned about the payment. That affects my, you know, how much money I've left at the end of the month. That's a real world thing that's happening. So it's on my business report. My tax report's going to look different because depreciation is handled differently. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and that's how I've been doing it. I just, when you said that the other day, I kind of figured that because I know it's depreciated, but I was just wondering if it still went in there, which I've been doing. What about other trucking incomes? Um, What I mean is one of the trucks that I had, uh, um, it's sold on payment terms to a driver that's leased on over here. And they, the, the carrier takes the payment from him and then puts it in my account. So it shows up on my settlement. Do I put that in there? Or Travis, I mean, it's not really. I'll let you take this one. Say it again, sorry. So right. it, hey, Danny, I that, run one truck d- and trailer. Danny. Let, let me explain it to him. I think he'll probably do it pretty quick. He sold a, a right. tractor that he used to use in his business. He sold it to somebody on a payment plan. He's holding the financing. It's actually being managed through the carrier. They're both leased to, so the carrier actually takes money out of Danny's settlement and or takes it out of the other guy's settlement and pays Danny the truck payment. So, But that... that doesn't have much to do with the the tax treatment he sold an older piece of equipment on a on a payment plan is what he did so now he's asking how does he handle that for taxes and accounting so the the answer is not going to be something that you like danny because when you sell uh equipment that's been depreciated on a contract you have to recapture the depreciation as ordinary income and you have to do it in the year of sale. So when you do it on a contract, you're not allowed to use the contract method for the gain that's due to depreciation. Now, if you actually sold it for more than you paid for it and there's actually appreciation on this asset, which I doubt, but if there were, then that amount of gain is eligible for the installment method and you can spread it out over the life of the contract. But when you've depreciated it and you're you're selling it for some amount less than what you originally paid and all the gain is just due to the depreciation deductions that you took, then all that gain is taxable to you in the year of sale when you sign the contract and really isn't eligible to be spread out by using the installment method over the life of the contract. Uh, and Danny, I'll I'll address how right. you you enter this into say profit gauges or not. And you know, one of the things we did with our accounting program was we broke a lot of accounting rules, and we did it on purpose. We we you know we realized that one guy running one truck does not have to account for things the way corporations do. With you know, it's much more complicated. We try to keep it as simple as we can. This to me is the sale of this truck is almost like a distraction. So I would just rather keep it out of my accounting. And technically that's not correct. We should be accounting for all this stuff, but it's much easier to just handle this on the tax return at the end of the year. You know, keep all your records separate. I don't enter stuff like this into profit gauges. To me, it's just a distraction. It makes the numbers more complicated. Now I have to explain to somebody that, you know, I would just rather leave it out of my accounting. It really doesn't have a big impact on my everyday operational numbers. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So I, I just keep it out of right. it. It just complicates things. And it, 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 there's no real value to having that information in my 
accounting that I'm trying to look at every day to run my business. Just deal with it on the tax return at the end. All right. That makes sense. That's kind of what I was thinking, and I haven't haven't added it in there. I mean, I've, yeah, I've got I would the record it out. from the settlements of the show. I, yeah, and, and when right. you, when you Sounds enter settlements, good. we even we give you an option there to kind of even though it's being recorded in the settlement, so the settlement balances, you can choose a category so that it doesn't end up in the reports, and we we explain that in there. Hey, Travis, I, I want to go back to something you just said. Um, have you noticed yet? Uh, I'm having a feeling maybe you haven't yet, but you might this tax season. It might end up being surprise. Have you done many owner-operator tax returns where you've actually had to show capital gains on the sale of their equipment? No. Get ready. No, I've not. You're Are going you? to. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, in, in all the years I did tax returns for owner-operators, I think I could remember one case where this actually happened because typically somebody buys a truck retail – so they're paying the maximum price for it. They use it a lot. They put a lot of miles on it, and then they trade it in, which is wholesale, or they basically kind of sell it at more of a wholesale price. Uh, and there's always a huge loss on this equipment. I mean, you paid 100000 for it. You're selling it for twenty. Uh, that's a typical scenario right. with, the, with a truck. So you said we, we have to pay tax on the recapture of depreciation which is correct. And people always think of capital gains. And I have to tell them, no, this isn't a capital gain, not at all. Except the market, the used truck market got so screwed up in the last year that we were seeing people that had bought trucks, used them for a year or two, and was selling them for significantly more than what they paid for it. I mean, it was crazy, some of the numbers we were seeing. We were seeing trucks that, it, and uh, e, e, this was even happening in new trucks, uh, trucks that used to be $180,000 all of a sudden were $230,000. It, it felt like it happened overnight. And the used truck market was just stupid. Trucks that, in my opinion, the real mm. value of them might have been 40000 they were selling for eighty and ninety. Wow. It, it, so I have a feeling... You're, you're going to see some of these this tax season. So now you've got someone who may have taking, taken bonus depreciation on that truck. <laughs> right. The basis got written down to zero, <laughs> and now they've got a huge income event huge. from the sale. Yes. Yes. And, and, and the majority of it is not, a, you know, even if you got paid up front, you know, that's one thing, and you have the cash. But if you took it on a contract, then you could be stuck with a lot of tax with and not no much income. cash to show for it. Right. Um, yeah. Didn't didn't the um, like kind exchange rules change in the last couple of years? We can't use like kind exchange anymore for equipment, right? Right. Yeah. Like kind exchange is only for real estate now. It used to be you could take like kind equipment and exchange it for like kind equipment, but. Uh, you can no longer do that. Now, that's coincided with the relaxed, you know, accelerated depreciation rules. So as long as you went out and bought something, you can right. Right. write off the new one while you have to pick up the gain on the old one. So 
it has it has kind of softened the blow. But if you waited a year to buy the new one, you're stuck with a big income jump in the year of sale on something like that. Yeah, one of the things I really want to encourage people that are listening now, you know, I already said get get this in early. This year, probably more important than ever. There's just been some really weird stuff going on. And if you sold equipment last year, especially if you know you actually sold it for more than what you paid for it, and there was a lot of it happening, if that's the case, you want to get into your tax preparer this afternoon. Start talking about this because you could be looking at a significant tax bill that you don't expect. Yeah. A big recapture of depreciation and capital gains. And, and like I said, we've never seen that. Yeah. 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 It, it's just that that's so unusual in this industry, but I have a feeling this year it's going to be fairly common. The, the numbers got so skewed at one point, I actually came on the air and made mm-hmm. the statement if I still owned my small trucking company right now, there was a time where I came on the air and said, if I still owned my trucking company right now, I would sell everything I owned. I would sell all the trucks at any equipment I had, trucks, trailers, it would go and I would take a year's vacation and I'd come back and buy it all later in a year. I'd buy it all back. <laughs> it got that bad. Yeah. The numbers were so skewed. It, it, and I was, it wasn't really tongue-in-cheek. I, I could have made the argument that it actually made sense. You could have taken a year's vacation and come out about even, the way the numbers were looking. Wow. Yeah, it was just, just okay. crazy. So we'll, uh, you can keep us updated on that as we go through the tax season. We'll be talking to you on and off. We'll see if we see any of those. You bet. All right. Let's... Yeah, um, yeah. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Doug, welcome to the program. Hello, gentlemen. How are you today? Good. What's on your mind today? Uh, I'm calling to get refreshed on deductibility of working vacations. Got it. Every year I take a working vacation hey, Doug. Hey, Doug. in March in Doug, Louisville. Hold, hold on a second. I, we don't really need the backstory, and uh, Travis got about four minutes here. Um, Travis, why don't you just jump in and give us what you can on this until you've got to go, and then uh, I can probably wrap it up. I, this can actually get to be a sure. pretty long well, answer, right? I, I would say, first of all, I don't like the phrase working vacation um you know the irs is going to say you can deduct your travel expenses when you're traveling solely for business so there's also if you're traveling principally for business so if, if you're doing some vacationing but you're going to a place principally for business then you can allocate your cost and say all right well here's my days that i'm on vacation here's the days that i'm actually there for work I can take this percentage of my travel because it's mostly for work. Uh, if you're there just incidentally for business, but you're there principally for vacation, they're not going to want to let you deduct much of anything except the, the direct business, direct costs for you know, the business that you're conducting. And so you want to be careful about calling it a working vacation. You want it to be at least principally for business, if not solely for business. 
So if there's a reason that you're going to a place and it's business related and that's the whole reason you're there for all the days that you're there, then yes, you can deduct all of your costs. But if you're there and you're splitting days or if you're there, if the business can be done from anywhere, you're going to have a hard time convincing an auditor that you're there, you know, that is ordinary and necessary for you to be there for business. But travel happens all the time for business. There's plenty of, of necessary reasons to travel for business. You just have to make sure that the reason that you're traveling is a necessary business one. You, you know, gotcha. Doug, I think the best answer here, because Travis and I could honestly spend an hour or two on this topic talking about different scenarios and what would be deductible in each scenario. Some things might be, some things won't be. It, it, none of it's absolutely black and white. I think the, the real answer here is that if you are in business and you take vacations, and you should, talk to your tax preparer about it ahead of time. Just pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, I've got this trip coming up or I've got this conference I'm thinking about going to or whatever. Just lay it out and then just keep all the records. I mean, this is even something we could probably figure out after the fact. But trying to explain all these variables in a way that anybody's going to remember it, that it would do any good is almost impossible on this topic. So the, the, the answer is yes. If you're going to take vacation and you're a business owner, we want to make it tax deductible. The best way to do it and do it right is talk to your tax preparer before you go. Correct. Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, Travis, we're, uh, we're going to cut you loose here. I don't want you to be late for anything. Really appreciate it. We love these segments. I think people are getting a lot out of it. So we're going to continue when you've got time. I know it's going to get crazy to kind of check in with you throughout the tax season. Great. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. All right. We're, uh, you know, we will continue. Um, if, as long as we've got questions, it is now going to turn into just a true free-for-all. Um, we really were um, highlighting the tax questions there, but uh, anything goes, I'll hang out here as long as we've got calls. So dial us up, 855-950-3835. It is a free-for-all now. Let's go to Texas. BJ, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. I talked to you two days ago about my kidney stones, and I forgot to ask a question sure. real quick. <clears throat> um, of the things that I eat, uh, I also munch on mixed nuts when I'm driving. And I know almonds, you said, and the mixed nuts that I have, it's, I would say, mostly almonds. Is there any other I should be aware of or all of them? You know, nuts are... Nuts are kind of a tough category. You know, when we go keto or paleo, um, we tend to lean pretty heavily on nuts for several reasons. They're, we don't talk a lot about calories because we don't worry about calories, but calories can tell us something. You know, higher calorie foods can be more satiating. They can uh, impact our appetite. Now, if it's high-calorie, high-carb, Probably not. But nuts tend to be high calorie because they have a lot of fat, lower carb. Um, so we tend to lean on them pretty heavily. And then when we're getting rid of grains, 
we have found that nut flours, almond flour in particular, can replace a lot of those grain products we used to eat, like tortillas, tortilla chips. We can make, you know, muffins and cookies out of almond flour. So we tend to lean pretty heavy on the almond flour and we forget about that. Every time we have these products, like eating a couple right. big handfuls of nuts. So I, I don't I don't necessarily tell people you have to avoid nuts. You shouldn't. I eat them. I got a pantry full of them and I do eat, you know, nut flour products like tortillas and that kind of thing. But I, I've been paying more attention to it and and kind of cutting back some on it. And as far as nut consumption, just eating handfuls of nuts, I used to do it a lot in the beginning for several years. I, I've just really kind of gotten away from it. I, I, I do eat nuts occasionally now, but not nearly as much as I used to. I think this is one of those that you, you might kind of want to gauge, you know, everybody's a little different. How much of this is, is okay in your diet without seeing, you know, negative consequences? Right. That's kind of where I'm at. I was just wondering, um, like I said, uh, to contributing to um, kidney stones. Well, nuts have oxalates. So, and, and oxalates are what we are concerned about when we're thinking about kidney stones, um, gallbladder stones, um, gout-like symptoms. When we, you know, we're eating really low carb, we should not be having gout symptoms. But we kept finding people who did. I went through a time where I had them. It's not really gout. It, it gout. The reason we get pain from gout is because gout is an excess of uric acid and when uric acid combines it creates these sharp little pointy crystals and those crystals tend to settle right. in joints a lot of times in the feet just because of gravity and then those crystals cause horrendous pain and swelling and inflammation in the joint that's gout what we now know is that an overconsumption of oxalates, you can form those same kinds of crystals in your joints, but it's an oxalate crystal. And it will cause gout-like pain or arthritis-like pain. And it's not gout or arthritis. It's just too many oxalates in our diet. So if you're suffering any of those symptoms, then you definitely want to think about oxalates and cut back on them. And almonds are high in oxalates. Right. I'm not feeling any kind of joint pain or anything like that. It's just the kidney stones that I'm trying to isolate and stay away from foods or more foods that I should be eating. So. I would watch the, the nut consumption then. You don't have to cut it out completely, but I, I would minimize okay. it. Right. And then the okay, other then. thing we can do around oxalates, because, you know, I, I, I've even said that um, Sally Norton, she's like the queen of oxalates. Um, and we have scheduled, we're going to do a three-part mini-series coming up on this and really, you know, dive deep down oh, into good. this. Um, that's really where a lot of this oxalate information has come from, uh, almost all of it. In fact, I talk to a lot of other doctors who are even really good holistic natural doctors who don't understand the oxalate issue. It, it's not one of those things that a lot of people have focused on. Um, but it, it's definitely an issue. And 
we can look at the, the, the approach I like to take now with oxalates, and it's how I do it. I, I'm not trying to eliminate them completely from my diet, but I am looking at it and saying right. I want to minimize oxalates. So what, what oxalate foods am I willing to give up? Because there are some I really don't want to give up. You know, I, I don't want to be right. nut free. I, I like nuts and I like almond flour products, so I, but I, I've got to watch how much of that I consume. Um, beets can be really high in oxalates. I, I love beets. I grow them. So I don't really want to get rid of beets. Maybe I'll just cut down how much I eat. The one group of foods that is really high in oxalates, um, dark leafy greens, I had no problem giving those up. I can live just fine without spinach and kale and all those other greens. They do almost nothing for me. So it was easy to give up those. Right. Um, and that makes room in my diet for some of the other dark chocolate. I'm not giving up. And dark chocolate is high in oxalates. But I eat dark chocolate every day and I'm going to continue. But now I understand I can look at my overall oxalate load and try to figure out what I can cut out to keep those numbers down. All right, then, Kevin. Well, I appreciate it. Let's get to someone else. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Texas. Paul, welcome to the program. Howdy. What's on your mind so today? Did you hear the good news about New Zealand? The good news for New Zealand? You finally got rid of your wacky prime minister? Yeah, she's going to step down by the 7th I, of February. So I did, seen a post on Facebook this morning that said New Zealand has run out of alcohol and fireworks because everyone is celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, I I thought I saw something. I was kind of scrolling some headlines this morning. I thought I saw something. She's stepping down because she made some sort of stupid comment about somebody else. Is that what happened? Oh, I don't know. I haven't. No, I just heard yeah, the good I, news. I didn't read the whole story, but I think I think uh, I, I, I saw leaving. something like Not she got enough. she got caught on a hot <laughs> mic saying something she shouldn't have been saying. I don't know what it was though. You know, she, yeah, well, she good. takes that page out of Biden's book. Well, <laughs> well, good, good riddance. No, she was, I'll, she was a whack job. You know, I've said this before, you know, I, I, I like having plan B and plan C and I like being prepared for things. And I, I, I have always said when the, when the U S goes off the deep end and I expect that it will, um, plan B for me was New Zealand. I looked around the world and I said, if there's any place else I'd like to live, it would be New Zealand. So I'm really hoping you get a better yeah. prime minister. She was a whack job. Oh, yeah, yeah, authoritarian. Yeah. Lunatic. Yeah. Do as I say, we're the only only source of the truth. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, crazy. But yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think she's going to disappear totally. She'll probably end up working with Klaus Schwab or it, Greta Thunberg or you know, trying to change it, the world and all that kind of crap. Well, she could move to the U.S. Yeah, and just yeah, become a. She could move to the U.S. and become a CNN contributor. Yeah, that's about a IQ level, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that was that was the good news yesterday. So yeah, it was New Zealand. I, I liked that. Yeah. So, right. That's all I got today. All right. That's all I need. Thanks for the call. 
Let's go to Detroit. Robert, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. I had a question about the tax advisor you just had on. Sure. Uh, well, really two questions, but him, his is, I don't own a business. I'm just a local hourly driver. Um, I've never, I've always done my own taxes, but the last couple of years with all the raises everybody gets to keep us happy, uh, I'm considerably making a lot more money now than I ever did. And I'm wondering now if I should have a tax strategy, you know, uh, here going forward, because we're, we're well over a hundred thousand as a local hourly driver. Yeah, this is, it's a good question. I'm glad you called because for the last several years, I've kind of been encouraged since Trump made his big tax law changes, you know, his first couple months in office, I've been encouraging employee drivers to do their own tax return. He simplified it so much. The programs like, you know, the, the tax programs, um, that are out there, several of them. I tend to like Intuit products. Um, they're really good these days. If you just take your time and follow their guidance, you can do a tax return yourself. It, it's And I was encouraging people to do it, and I still will, except when you get to the point where, and hopefully everybody does, you get to the point where you're starting to build some personal wealth. We talk about using mint.com to know what your net worth is. that That's a number we calculate and we want our net worth to grow over time. That's the whole point. As you start to grow a net worth, then it, even as an employee, it makes sense to have a tax preparer to look at things like real estate or tax credits that might be out there that we could put some money into. If you don't have a lot of money, I mean, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're an employee, there's nothing we're going to be able to do. I mean, it, the, your, your numbers are your numbers. You plug them in and you get an answer. There, there's no real thinking or strategizing that can be done. If you don't have any money, what we can't do any of these things. But where you're at and you're starting right. to accumulate money and you're making money, and yes, to answer your questions, he will work with you. He does work with, you know, uh, employed <laughs> individuals. Um, and, and you can sit down with him and, and start planning for the future. If I'm making this much money every year, what are the things I can start thinking about investing into that have tax advantages? And that, like, the health savings account. I've always thought that those were a use now or lose. No. By the end of the year, you had it. No. If you put that money in, See, so I never contributed. But now is, I could shelter money because I have those accounts. Yeah, this is, this is where I get so frustrated with our government for overcomplicating things. There is a plan for employees that's similar to HSAs. But different in one. I have that. Yeah, that's the one. Use it or lose it. I hate programs like that. That is so damn ignorant. You're gonna tell me that this is my money, but if I don't use it for something specific at a certain time, I just lose it. I, I, I hate it stuff like that. And that has confused people about HSAs forever. They were in one of these plans. They assume an HSA is the same way. It's not, not even close. It just like Travis started to explain. And I would have to have him look at it. 
We, we can even convert our HSA money into retirement money at some time. We never lose it. Yeah. And, and I, could, I could potentially put money in that account, keep it, and that's a place to put it, yes. to park it. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, and see, really... It, when I, I was making 60000 right, as a driver, it didn't matter. It, but now it correct. potentially could matter. Correct. And, and you may, you know, after a couple of years of making this kind of money, you may all of a sudden say, hey, I, I'm uh, looking where I can park ten or $20,000 a year. <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah. where we're getting to. <laughs> exactly. That's exciting. And we don't want to <laughs> give any more of that to the government than we have to. All right. Yeah, okay. Thank you on that. And then my second question was hot honey. I take the sliced jalapenos from the jar. You just buy them in a jar on the shelf right next to the pickles. Okay. Pour the juice out and add the honey. Is that is that reasonable to do? It is. There there might be something happening. There, there's something about fermenting that has always confused me a little bit. You know, fermenting and pickling are very similar, but also very different. We pickle things with vinegar. We just put them in vinegar and that pickles them. There aren't a lot of t- uh, health benefits there. There's nothing wrong with it, but there aren't any big health benefits to pickling something. When we ferment something, we put it in salt and water, and there is a pro- the fermentation process turns sugars into acids, lactic acid. And vinegar has acetic acid in it. That's what it makes it taste acidic and, you know, tart. When we ferment, we get lactic mm-hmm. acid, which has some of the same things. It's an acid. It starts to soften the vegetable. We get that tart flavor. Uh, but now we have real benefits. We have the probiotics that are being made and, and the process releases more nutrients. So, Then what happens, because I've seen recipes like this over the years where we're trying to ferment something, but it's got vinegar in it. And and I've read some things that the vinegar can block the fermentation process if there's too much of it. So you might preserve the food. You might end up being pickling your food when you really think you're fermenting them. So when you take those peppers out of that jar, even though you poured out the juice, they're, they're still kind of saturated with vinegar. I don't know right. the answer to this question. I don't know if that's if that's true that that acetic acid might block the fermentation or not. So, and I've gone to look it up a couple times, and it's one of those topics. It seems like the more I read, the more confused I get. So I have avoided putting any acid into anything I'm fermenting until I'm done fermenting it. So I will ferment the hot honey. And then when I take those peppers out of the hot honey, I put them in a jar and cover them in white vinegar then. Now, I, now it's shelf-stable because the pH is low. Then, you know, later on I can go blend that and turn it into a hot sauce. But to answer your question, I, I don't know how this is going to work if you tried to do it with a pickled jalapeno to start with, and that's what you're doing. You, you may just have to experiment and see right. what happens. 
Now, he, I can tell you this. I you're have, going, and they've been fine. Yeah, you will get hot honey, and if that's all you're looking for, yeah. fantastic. That, that I can tell you that will work. You will get a product that comes out very similar to what we're doing. It's going to be thinner and hot, and flavors have changed. Are you fermenting the honey and the peppers and converting more of that sugar to lactic acid? I don't know. Or, oh, yeah, the, the tree biotic, you know, the, the biotic part of it, if you're making that or not, because it was already vinegared. Right. Now, I. And it, and it killed it off before I, you even got started. Yeah, there are a couple of brands of hot honey already on the market. Mike's Hot Honey is probably the biggest that I've found. And when I taste that hot honey, it tastes nothing like mine. I can tell it's not fermented. Okay. They just put hot peppers into honey and then their honey is pasteurized so there there is no probiotics it's much much sweeter than my hot honey and it's still thicker it tastes like honey i don't get the Mm. fermented flavor i it's just it just tastes like hot honey and fermented hot honey tastes very different i tried it with kimchi also just so you know uh I took the jar of kimchi and just poured the honey in it in a mason jar. And well, uh, that bubbled now, out the sides of the lid. Now, that's different. That's different because kimchi, I, virtually every brand of kimchi I have ever found in a store is true fermented kimchi. It's not pickled. So your okay. jalapenos were pickled. They already have vinegar in them. Your kimchi, kimchi right. yeah. is kimchi truly, yeah, it's truly fermented. So now when you pour raw <laughs> honey over that fermented product, you're just speeding up the whole fermentation process. That should work really well. Yeah, and it did. It, it, it softened, it changed the taste of the kimchi. Oh, I, I, You just have to find a product to use it with. I, I was just going to say, that's you know, a really interesting thought. God, kimchi honey. I may try that. Sauerkraut? Yeah. Sauerkraut does the same thing. I bought the Cleveland Kitchen sauerkraut. I right. ate all that. Because that I'll add to burgers and hot dogs. It just makes a sweet sauerkraut instead of a sour sauerkraut. Yeah, but, actually, probably yeah, a little sweet. Was a little different. I got a little yeah. nervous. <laughs> yeah, that, that's yep. a that's an yep. interesting thought, though. I, I um, and I, I I would like that. I make my own kimchi. I make it really spicy because I like it. You know, really kind of blow the top of your head off hot when I eat kimchi. The idea of putting some honey in that and then fermenting it like that is kind of interesting. The the new one is turmeric. Ginger and pineapple is what I'm going to shove in a jar next. Oh, there you go. And see what that, and then, yep, that's the next one. There but you the go. pineapple, I would just slice that, right? I'm going to take a brand new fresh pineapple and shove it in, you know, yeah. peel it oh, and then hey, shove it in, right? One, yeah. of the okay. things you, one of the things you do need to pay attention to when you start fermenting fruit um, we also have to be a little careful of it when we're fermenting honey, but I haven't had it happen at all yet. Um, when you're fermenting fruit, you could create alcohol. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and, and so we can lacto-ferment fruit, 
and if we lacto-ferment it, you're not creating alcohol. Lacto-fermentation takes the sugar and converts it to lactic acid. That's why we call it lacto-fermentation. But there's enough sugar in fruit that you could get some wild yeast in there. And then yeast right. will ferment that so, sugar into alcohol. So if you taste it, if it gets poppy like apples you, do or... Uh, correct. You'll taste uh, it. Then you know. Yeah, you'll taste it. Yeah, you'll taste it. Like just if apple juice goes bad. Yeah. Okay. And, and as far as I know, there's nothing in it that's bad for you. You're just consuming alcohol. Right. Okay, well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to New Jersey. Stephen, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. I uh, I wanted you to look at our numbers. Just uh, It was a crazy year for 2022 for us and me and Truckin. Uh, I've never had numbers uh, that good. Wow. Yeah, boy, do I love this. I love looking at these reports and numbers that I could just just a couple of years ago could have never imagined. Um, yeah, so let's uh, let's and run. I know, uh, Go ahead. Like we don't, we're least we're leased onto a carrier. We get paid our line hauls fifty six percent of what we get of what we gross to the company. So that's 56%. Uh, our fuel surcharge is 100, and then we get the massasorials that those those percentages vary. But our line haul is only 56%. Uh, the company yeah, this, covers all, you know, all our freight. Yeah, the, so let the, it, and I'm sort of running out of time a little bit here today. We have rolling tow coming up at 10, but uh, I want to go through at least some of the big numbers here. Gross revenue. Now we're talking about one truck, Husband and wife team, and you guys didn't really work all that hard. Not as a team. Not compared to Matt. Right. Not compared to Matt. (laughs) Yeah, so you guys did 183, almost 184,000 miles. Matt did 150-some on his own. So you you guys were uh, part-timers, paid tourists. Uh, But but on 183,000 miles, you generated six. $170,000 $170,000 of revenue. That's incredible. Never, I never in my life uh, thought, thought we could see numbers like that uh, uh, driving truck. And while, and while we're doing this, working this, my wife is going through college, getting her <laughs> master's degree oh, man, for I, our future I, life I, out of trucking. I love that. That is so damn cool. So, so, so we can make, when we can make that kind of revenue and her going for her masters. Insane. Absolutely insane, but I love it. So let's talk about the important number. How much was left? Um, almost $300,000. I, 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 that just, I, it just yeah, makes we, me smile. If you look at the, could change that number even drastically more. Our fuel cost is high. We're at, of, uh, oh, she was an 80 some, uh, 60 some cents a mile. We're high on fuel. I don't, I don't really focus on fuel. And just re- oh, hey, wait a minute. 67 miles wait, wait a minute. My- wait a minute. I have to correct my number. I forgot you're an S Corp. You're paying wages. 
So your net of of two ninety two, I said almost three hundred. I'm wrong because you had forty one five in wages. You're like three hundred and thirty some thousand dollars in profit. Yeah, that is just incredible. And we spent $80,000 last year on repairs and maintenance and whatever the truck needs it gets. Uh, but we lost the cylinder head last year. I have a one box because I got nervous about the one box quitting on us. And we've got 830,000 miles on the truck. I got a one box all bought and paid for sitting in a storage unit until the day the truck needs it. Nice. So I bought some parts that haven't even been put on the truck yet uh, just because I didn't want to risk sitting for months at a time. No, that, that's Because that's with that awesome. kind of revenue, I hey, don't like sitting. Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, I know both of you yep. two have also done amazing things with your health. Uh, we've talked about your story yep. and how much weight you two have lost. You look at pictures before and after. You could convince somebody that it's not even the same two people. Um, that's the, how drastic the change was with you guys. You look, Both of you look just amazing now. Um, we've talked about this idea of you know habits and then what we call keystone habits that there are certain habits and certain things in your life that when you change them, they tend to be core enough to your whole life that other things start to get better as well. It, that sounds like what's been going on with you two. Yeah, yeah, I would say it definitely changes you when you feel healthier, you feel healthy, happier. Uh, you just stay focused on the better side of life. Uh, you do good, good comes back to you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you feel better. Your attitude is better. You have more energy. So we really think health is probably the keystone habit. Change health and a lot of other things tend to follow and, and improve. Absolutely. I agree with that. Well, congratulations. Great stuff. Hey, I, I'm going to cut you loose today because uh, we've just got to wrap this up. But uh Thanks for sharing that. Man, I just love seeing those numbers. Let's go to Kansas. Bob, you get the final word today. Hey, uh, I just heard this. You know, you can buy stuff for uh, health, you know, through your SHA. And I was just curious, what would the steps be to maybe get a cold tub? Because they're so dang expensive. And I feel like this is all your fault. You got me started on... <laughs> cold showers and stuff and now i'm totally addicted to it and now and you want i loved it and i have a cold tub i've set up myself but it's kind of hard to maintain it right. and it's just on the weekends i have time to do it right and i think it'd be so cool to have one that would just be a all taken care of itself but it's how, so, how would you do it to get it to pay so here's i i I tend to be more of a risk taker. I tend to have a lot of risk tolerance. I've dealt with the IRS for years. I've been through audits with them. So I, I'm not, you know, I, I kind of understand that process. I, I would take this approach and it's, it's not the best approach, but, um, and like I said, Travis is pretty aggressive on stuff like this. If we can make an argument, you could go out and try to find a practitioner, a functional medicine doctor or somebody to write you a prescription for it. And if they do that, then it, it basically becomes deductible on an HSA. I, I wouldn't even bother. If I wanted one, I'd just go buy one and, and, you know, write it off through my HSA and worry about it later. This stuff gets audited so rarely anyway. 
that I, I just really wouldn't even worry about it. I would just do it and, and pay for it through my HSA and be done with it. Let them figure it out later. Uh, me, me and the wife have been going back and forth. We've already spent a bunch of money on our patio cover and all that. And I was like, oh, I want this really bad. And she's like, no, we've already, this is the limit. Yeah. We've got a budget. She's sticking <laughs> to it, you know. And, and I'm like, oh, please. But now yeah. I got this one little, oh, we can save some tax money. That's Maybe right. Let me do it. That I, I would just do it. I, I would just buy it and okay. pay for it through my HSA and I'll deal with it later. And the odds that I'll ever have to deal with it are pretty small anyway. I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. I there love you go. it. Hey, have a great day, Kevin. There you go. Thanks for the call. Bye-bye. All right. I am going to wrap this up right on time. Look at that. 959. Um, I'm going to wrap this up and Rolling Toe is going to launch here in probably five minutes or less. So we just have some background stuff. I got to close one show, open another show. Uh, Mike and Kevin Beckett are standing by and waiting. So we're going to make that transition right now. I will see you back here tomorrow. I do know that uh, Joel is confirmed. John's a maybe. He's still in Daytona uh, doing race stuff. So we'll see. But we will be back here tomorrow for a free-for-all technology and efficiency show. We'll see you then. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.